0: I'm uh, Kevin Bloom, I'm a writer and a journalist. I'm here with our very handsome and talented sound man and producer, Joel Azaisky, and uh, our guest today is Leonie Jaber, one of the most well-known environmental writers and journalists in South Africa, the author of a number of books. Her first was Scorched, South Africa's Changing Climate, published in 2006. She's also written Boiling Point, People in a Changing Climate, and um, invaded the biological invasion of South Africa. Two honorable mentions at the Ellen uh, Paton Awards, the most prestigious nonfiction awards in the country, a Ruth First Fellowship, and on and on it goes. Uh, Leone, welcome to The podcast. It's uh, fantastic to have you on today because you have a a lead story on the Daily Maverick today that seems to be lighting a bit of a fire in uh, a community and a readership that uh, goes beyond the so-called awakened to climate change into ecosystem collapse and it is uh, eliciting quite a bit of feedback and yeah. it's, uh, it's a seminal piece in terms of what it's bringing up for the first time to a South African audience and that is the, the psychological fallout from what we are facing the very real, very imminent existential threat that climate and uh, ecosystem collapse poses. And I'd like to open up with um, one of the things you bring up in the piece, which is that journalism, writing, editorial of this nature has typically not gleaned an audience and it's typically been something that uh, editors shy away from. And yet, although you state this in the piece, the piece itself is giving a lie to that today, right now, as we're talking. And um, I'm wondering what that's bringing up for you.
1: Um, Well, it's interesting. And thank you, Kevin. It's lovely to be in conversation with you and, and to share a very important conversation that I think many of us have turned away from because it's maybe too overwhelming. Um, <clears throat> I was quite nervous about publishing that piece. In fact, I I wrote it, it was almost like a, a journaling exercise on Monday. I was in the midst of deep despair. Um, I mean, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but I was, <laughs> you know, I just had a full-on anxiety attack, just overwhelmed by the enormity of the task after 17 years of writing about this subject feeling like it's not getting any traction, so difficult to get publishers to publish these stories, getting feedback that the f- stories get such low readership, and just the futility of it in in spite of seeing how, um, you know, we are heading towards species-level extinction for ourselves, you know. And in the midst of that overwhelm, I just poured it all out and uh, it came out in this piece. And I've been overwhelmed by how much traction it's gained. And I think what it tells me is that there are many other people out there who have been sharing similar concerns. And suddenly this allows people to pop their heads up and make eye contact and realize that there actually are a lot of people out there who've been gravely concerned for a long time, but feeling unheard. Um, You know, I think the difficulty with the press uh, then, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. Uh, The media tends to focus on what they regard as the important news stories, you know, they give the newsroom resources to, to the real beats like politics or economics, dealing with corruption. Even sport is regarded as a real beat. And then the science and environmental stuff is kind of a, a nice-to-have add-on if you have a little bit of a spare change, you know, some charity. Mm. Mm. Um, so this hasn't been given the urgent attention that it needs, and yet climate change, climate breakdown is actually the biggest story of our lifetimes it touches on absolutely every aspect of our society our economy ourselves and then of course what is coming through increasingly and and interestingly and is is this awareness from within the scientific community that there are going to be very serious mental health consequences as a result of climate change and by by that i mean um the the distress caused by um, being exposed to extreme weather events. So, you know, think of um, someone's house burning down in a raging wildfire or a family being um, having to migrate because their town has been inundated in a flood or um, the distress that Capetonians felt when they literally thought that they would run out of water. That kind of acute uh, anxiety is going to lead to increased levels of depression, um anxiety possibly violence, interpersonal, personal violence, and even self-harm and suicide. And then the other thing that's coming through from the mental health community is, I think maybe what you and I are talking about more is that this chronic um, stress of facing such an uncertain world where we're watching what seems like um, the potential of societal breakdown happening within our lifetimes and it feels so out of control and it's this bigger existential dread that can lead to um, terrible feelings of overwhelm and depression. And I've seen it in myself. I've been dealing with this for two years now. Mm. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, every seven years, they do a really big assessment of what the state of climate uh, and the impacts of climate, et cetera, are. And they're busy drawing up their next assessment record, report. It's the sixth assessment report that will come out in 2022. And the, the health writers in this sector are giving unprecedented attention to the mental health implications. So the thinking is that um, one of the reasons I think many people turn away from climate change is they have this enormous sense of overwhelm. It's a planetary scale crisis. What can this individual do in his or her own sphere of influence? And because of that sense of overwhelm, they just back off completely. And um, the, the mental health community are saying, we need to find ways to engage with that, to lean into this terrible discomfort and terror, um, because leaning into that and accepting it, we can move through the freeze response which is the last thing we need right now. Mm. And on the other side of the freeze response, we can find agency within this collapsing system, whether it's a small action within our communities, within ourselves, within our families. But that's kind of what we need to do. And I I think maybe what the call is from this piece that I've written is we need to find ways to support each other because we're going to start to see people's mental health unraveling. As as dare I say it very honestly, mine is at the moment. You know, it's... um, uh, it's quite, um, quite arresting to, to realize that we face such a big monumental problem and we feel like we have little agency in our small spheres of influence.
0: So, Leonie, I mean, you've, you've put yourself out in, uh, in that piece today. You've, you've very bravely um, and very honestly used yourself as, as an example. And uh, you've pointed out that uh, you've been on this for 17 years. I mean, your first book, uh, "Scorched South Africa's Changing Climate," came out in 2006, when uh, this very much was a uh, a peripheral issue. And uh, I put "issue" in uh, quotation marks because in South Africa, we still think this is an issue. Um, mm. You know, uh, in the UK. Uh, oh, actually, in the US, they were saying, so climate is a, is a single issue sort of uh, event, and we need to treat it as a single issue event. Uh, this is what the Democratic Party was, uh, was saying last year. And uh, you'll know better than most that uh, this is an issue within which uh, everything else falls. So uh, it's, it's not an issue. It's, uh, it's, it's mm. about the, the world in which we live. And uh, you know, calling something environmental journalism, our, our environment—it's uh, everything that surrounds us. It's yeah. uh, it's 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 what we are. And so, environmental journalism is is quite frankly journalism about everything. You're um, right.
1: That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, so 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 to link these two thoughts together. First of all, your first book, Scorched, came out in 2006. And today, you come out with this piece uh, 13 years later that, uh, you know, although I helped facilitate it, get published on the Daily Maverick, uh, to see it as the lead story this morning uh, was, uh, was something I certainly wasn't expecting. And uh, I think it's incredible. I mean, I just want to give Branco and Janet a, a big hug for that. Mm. Um, the 13 years... Between then, between 2006 and now, and I know you've been doing this journalism for, for 17 years, but
1: mm.
0: j- just talk us through those 13 years uh, w- what essentially has changed, and why, in the last two years, you've been drawn down into this um, very justifiable abyss of, of mm. emotional. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, tell us what it is and and tell us, tell us what's happened. You know, paint us a picture of, of, of this emotional and narrative arc.
1: So I, I guess I, I for most of my career have had this maybe slightly naive idea that the arc of history bends towards justice Mm. and um, you know, I've been able to survive as a writer <clears throat> specialising in this field because people are willing to pay me a little bit of money at least to write these stories. So at least they're getting out there. And then I think I think the crash came on the morning that I woke up and discovered that Donald Trump was so far ahead of Hillary Clinton that it was clear he was going to win. I mean, I, I thought that was just a, a ludicrous kind of joke and yet he actually won. And I couldn't believe that a man that... Not just the individual, but he epitomizes the very extractive paradigm that is driving us towards extinction. You know a small number of elite um, who have been allowed corporate capture of the atmospheric space and so many of these other natural life support systems that are supposed to be part of the common good they've been allowed to commodify these places, um, capture them, use them for their own profit. Um, <clears throat> so this man gets into into the office in the states at the same time we have Jacob Zuma doing another one of his um, assaults on the Treasury to try and get rid of, you know, anyone who's in his way of um, kind of a nuclear deal. And, um, and then, of course, we suddenly start to see these extreme weather events just unfolding around the world and unequivocal links with our increased uh, concentration of greenhouse gases. And it just threw me into a terrible pit of despair. I just thought, you know, literally... Um, This has been going, I've been writing about this for 17 years. The extreme events we're seeing unfolding around us are the result of of decades of carbon emissions. If I do this for another 17 years, it's not going to make the slightest bit of difference. Why am I even doing this? And uh, I sat in that hole for many, many months. And uh, I just needed desperately to find something to get up and do each day that felt like it was making a difference. And incidentally, that's when I stumbled upon the psilocybin story, which we probably don't have time to go into now, but I was just I very fascinated very much want by to go it.
0: into it now, so, but okay. please carry on. <laughs> so
1: this is an important part of the story arc because um, I started looking at um, uh, some interesting legal processes that were happening in South Africa to decriminalize uh, psilocybin mushrooms so that they could become available for people to use in their homes um, for ceremonial therapeutic use. And at the same time, I started looking at this fascinating research that was coming from the scientific community abroad, medical research labs that were showing incredible breakthroughs in uh, treating treatment-resistant depression and end-of-life anxiety and certain substance dependence issues. People who hadn't responded to any other treatments were responding with remarkable um, positive returns uh, from just a few deep-dose sessions with um, psilocybin mushrooms. So I started writing the story, but no one really wanted to take the story here because I think it was too either too fringe, too weird, or else maybe a little bit too radioactive <laughs> because of how controversial psychedelics are. Mm. But I thought, I need something to hold on to. So I decided to launch into a podcast Uh, kind of a serialized audio book. Um, I trained myself up in very amateur sort of broadcast techniques so that I could start telling these stories around people in the underground in South Africa who were using um, psilocybin to manage their own mental health. And I thought, this is one way, you know, I can't change the climate um, crisis, but I can, if I can, advocate for change around the this illegal substance psilocybin which is actually very safe to use if it's used responsibly and literally can be a life-saving medicine for people with life-threatening depression for instance then that's one point small point of leverage that's one way that i can make a difference on a day-to-day level so i threw myself into this podcast completely self-funded no post-production support but it was an opportunity to tell stories without anyone else's agenda, and feel like I was actually contributing to some kind of shift in South Africa. And that it's interesting that 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 um, was it was so good for my my sense of well-being, in terms of feeling like I was actually making a difference. And <clears throat> it just it it really reflects exactly the kind of recovery arc that psychologists are talking about in Mm. terms of how we deal with the climate crisis. Mm. Um, Face the despair, face the sense of hopelessness and impotence, but then try and figure out where within your small sphere of influence, you have some way of leveraging change. And uh, once you find that point of agency and you start to work around that, then you can emerge on the other side, um, feeling like you can actually contribute, even if it's just in a tiny way. Um, but then th- what's amazing about the coming together of the climate crisis and the coming together of the psilocybin story, um, which is what I feel so passionately about and which is definitely going to drive everything I do in the next two decades, is <clears throat> we need a a massive shift in value system. And one of the ways of bringing about that shift in value system in order to disrupt the cultural narratives that are driving this overextraction of our natural world is psilocybin. So um, I I talk about um, the overview effect in some of my other writing. Now, the overview effect is um, something that... Can we... uh, Yes.
0: Sorry, Leonie. I mean, you're you're going to places that... uh, I really want to. St- I want to drill down into, and um, it seems to me, and uh, I'm pretty sure it seems to you too. And your your piece today is is just more evidence of it. That uh, brutal honesty, brutal per- personal honesty, is uh, is one of the things that's uh, that's needed now. And
1: yeah
0: talking from the deeply subjective and the personal into the, the objective and perhaps even the, the transpersonal. Mm. And so, you know, a, a question I really want to ask you, and you can ask me back if you need to, mm. is uh, the first time you took psilocybin,
2: mm.
0: what happened for you? What did you <laughs>
1: Um, that's interesting. I just want to respond quickly on on your opening comment there, because this is so true, and it's something that's come through in the feedback I've had on this article many times today. Um, you know, it's people are not engaging with the cold hard facts. Um, I felt very, I, I I feel uncomfortable making myself this vulnerable to people. Um, you know, when I when I I know. I'm not necessarily always emotionally terribly stable and people, you know, I have my own anxiety disorders and inherited stuff and, you know, people don't necessarily want to hear about that. But um, something happens when they see that you're human and that you're feeling these feelings too and they recognize it in themselves. And I think that needs to maybe come through in our storytelling more. Mm. Um, Interestingly enough, so I was introduced to psilocybin. And um, for those who aren't familiar with that, it's the um, psychoactive compound found in psychedelic mushrooms. Um, I guess uh, I was introduced to psilocybin recreationally, you know, in social circles. And it didn't, my first few experiences of it were not terribly profound. It was always, you know, very small doses, maybe point to a quarter of a gram or half a gram um but as i started to sort of increase the dose in in very safe sort of party circles with great music and safe friends around not touching alcohol i don't i don't like alcohol and it's it's quite bad for my mental health so i try to avoid it um and i'm not wild about cannabis but <clears throat> um yeah i guess i got to experience psilocybin in slightly larger doses listening to music and it was this incredible sense of connection with the music, uh, with myself, um, with the people around me. I became very non-verbal, very non-conversational, but was able to connect with people and the, the world around me in a very emotional, sort of gut-level way. And, uh, and that was quite intriguing. I'd, I'd never experienced anything like this. Um, and then, of course, when I started reading and learning about people using much larger doses of psilocybin for therapeutic purposes, where you take sort of between two to five grams and you have a a sober, experienced sitter with or watcher with you to supervise you through the process with beautiful music and a little bit of firelight because that works very well to enhance your experience. I had uh, some really powerful experiences um, that have allowed me to deal with a lot of my own childhood stuff, which has contributed to an anxiety disorder in, as an adult. Um, some attachment disorder issues. Um, you know, I, I was very lucky um, in that I was able to put myself through about six or seven years of very intensive therapy with a highly skilled therapist. And it was incredibly beneficial. Doing one or two deep dose psilocybin sessions was like taking everything that I learned and advanced within myself in the therapy and just landed it within my being. Mm -hmm. It's the most extraordinary breakthrough. And and that's what many people say is that, you know, a few deep dose sessions with psilocybin allow you to resolve things in a way that can take years to do through, through therapy.
0: So if we could sort of start mapping uh, how there appears to be a coming together of the uh, reason-based, science-based facts about climate change. And we're seeing it come out of the main UN reports and specifically in the The intergovernmental science policy platform on biodiversity and ecosystem services in their 40 page summary they mention indigenous wisdom uh in various forms uh over 30 times Mm. and so that's that's science which is now looking to a much older way of being human and then, and 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 then you have these these communities that in the West are sort of coalescing around psychoactive substances or ceremonies, whether it's psilocybin, whether it's ayahuasca, whether it's LSD, or whether it's some sort of indigenous ceremony, whether it's a sweat lodge. There, there are various ways of connecting into something that is deeper than what we have been acculturated to believe that we are and yeah. and and for me climate and ecosystem collapse is a enormous wake up call um you know even even the phrase wake up call it, it it just sounds so so poor next to it sounds so lame and so limp <laughs> next to the enormity mm. of of what's coming for us. But, but in some ways, uh, once once we're in these ceremonies and and, and 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 it's incredible that it's it's actually the scientific community that is saying to us, go and talk about this, because they're using phrases like indigenous wisdom. And and mm. and talking about indigenous wisdom, you're talking about ceremony, you're talking about ceremonies mm. of connection. You're talking about mm. is that enable you to uh, tamp down the ego enough to see what you are beyond the the reasonable mind or the rational mind, which which quite frankly has only been at the fore of uh, you know human existence since the age of enlightenment, since the age of reason, mm. which which mm. is 400 years old and. <laughs> Do you see where I'm going with this? What, I what, do. Yeah. yeah. So t- talk a bit to that. What are we? What are we articulating? Where are we going? That that that. Mm. And and it's not while it is solutions based, you know, even looking for a solution is 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 kind of the reasonable mind or the rational mind. It wants to, it wants to stay within the known where what we're being asked to do is to go into the unknown and to go into mystery and to, Mm. to just tamp ourselves down and to allow space for something else to come through.
1: Yeah. So I hope I'm going to articulate myself well here, but there's so many thoughts to try and pull together. Um, I'm reading, I'm working through this fascinating book at the moment called the patterning instinct by Jeremy Lent. Mm. And he tracks the evolution of our ideas and our language and the metaphors that we use to describe ourselves in relation to the world through being hunter-gatherers, through being agriculturalists and then through these modern sort of capitalists. And he tracks our relationship with nature and with each other and our cosmologies. And what comes through so clearly in his thinking is that, excuse me, what comes through so clearly in his thinking is he shows how for the longer time of our, the arc of our history, we've been hunter gatherers. You know, if we've been anatomically modern humans for 200,000 years, most of that time has been as hunter gatherers. We were animists. We didn't see ourselves as separate from nature. We were part of nature, a rock and a tree and the moving air each had its own spirit. And we, we were all part of this collective family, and we treated each other as such. And nature was a mother and a father and a parent. And then he tracks how we, we become agriculturalists and then slowly you have... The, the emergence of monotheistic religions. Mm. And um, obviously not, not only, I mean, you know, you do have more polytheistic, but um, the dominance of monotheistic religion then creates this worldview that we are masters of nature, that nature is there, that we are, uh, nature is our birthright, that we have dominion over nature and that we can use it as we like and that we're at the top of the pecking order The other thing that then emerges later with the scientific worldview, this mechanistic worldview, that nature is a machine, it's there for us to to understand and to master and to leverage and use for our own benefit. You know, if you can open the back, if we treat nature like it's a stopwatch or uh, an old fashioned um, analog watch, if you can open the back of the, the, the watch and you can see all the cogs that are turning and how the springs work, if you can understand that, you might even be able to improve on it and you can harness the power of that clock even better. And then add on top of that um, this more recent uh, worldview, which comes with this capitalist position, where we see everything in nature as a resource, a commodity for us to use for our economic mm. benefit. Mm. And this is a this is what is driving um, extractive capitalism. But if you look at it in terms of our longer story arc, um, we've we've been animists, um, wanting connection with nature, much longer than we've been. These mechanistic, scientific, um, religious people that believe we own nature and it's it's there for our benefit, and I think what Jeremy Lent is saying and and what you're reflecting and what you're picking up in the scientific literature, is that we need to revisit those older cosmologies and those older way of being, older ways of being that allow us to see ourselves as part of nature, not above or separate from nature. And the interesting thing that comes through in, in what you're reflecting on <clears throat> is that these indigenous ways of being, already they have the skills with them um, and that we can recapture in order to to change the cultural and value systems that are driving that. And um, it's, it's, the echoes of it are in our brain. You know, when I was a kid, uh, my parents uh, lived in Hogsback in Eastern Cape, and I was a little bit blasé about, you know, being exposed to nature. I didn't really care that much. But as an adult, now that I'm a city-dwelling adult, I realize for me the profound um, experiences that I have when I'm in solitude in nature. But I always thought it was a <clears throat> sort of a, a, a luxury thing that middle-class sort of enlightened green greenies Benefit from, but actually, I'm seeing more and more, and realizing more and more that every single one of us uh, benefits from being in nature. And there's a huge area of scientific medical research now that shows how good it is for our physical recovering from recovery from illness. Mm -hmm. How being in nature is good for our our emotional well-being. And so, this is just one small example of the fact that our brains are evolved for connection. And uh, there are a whole lot of little practices and little ways of being that can allow society to remember its inherited need to be in connection with nature and each other. And part of that is immersion in nature, wilderness experience. Part of it is through storytelling, storytelling that evokes a memory of of being part of this planet. Um, Psychedelics are another very Mm -hmm. potent way breath work, um, some mm. of the sort of dancing ceremonies that are, that are inherent in certain cultures. These are all ways of getting out of the, the intellectual mind, back in the body and back into the space around us.
0: Very well articulated. Thank you, Leonie. Thank you. You're touching on, on a lot. Um, one of the standout uh, sort of stories me from Jeremy Lent's uh, book that you refer to, is uh, the practice of the uh, Kung Bushman, who when a a great hunter, the best hunter in their band, comes back with the biggest sort of earlant in in the herd. And uh, it's an earlant he's been tracking for three days and he comes back to the band and he asks them to come and help him to, uh, to, to bring it back to the settlement. And they look at him and they say, we've never seen such a small buck. Why are you wasting (laughs) our time by making us come and do this? You're a terrible hunter. And, um, the reason they do that is so that this guy doesn't get a big head. Uh, and so, you know, He'll, he'll stay within the community and understand that he, he, he serves and, and that's what he does. And we've got it exactly us about face in, in, in the West. So, you know, the big swinging dick gets all of the airtime and that's the way our media works and, and, and that's what we're doing and, and that's what yeah. we're serving.
1: Yeah.
0: And, um, yeah. yeah,
1: sorry. No, keep going. Keep going. No,
0: go ahead. You, you want to interject? Tell me what, what <laughs> No, no. I
1: mean, it's, it, it's lovely because one of the, the things that Jeremy Lent goes on to speak about later is, and this is something about the kind of Western worldview as well that we now need to challenge, and you're challenging it as well. Um, Jeremy Lent talks about how in China, where they had very advanced technologies around, for instance, gunpowder, even though they had this this technology that gave them the potential for massive military might, and they still used it in a military context, they didn't use it to um, dominate and destroy others in the same way that the West did, does when it gets hold of technologies. <clears throat> so in other cultures, you know, the the advent of the stirrup in horse riding or the discovery of of gunpowder became useful technologies that helped helped communities advance. But they didn't use it to dominate and suppress as much as the West did when the West got hold of these technologies. There's something about the swinging dick thing (laughs) in the Western culture that allows us or or drives us to reward might and conquest And uh, we need to radically change that world view. Um, You know, the fact that um, history regards um, Columbus's um, uh, arrival in the new world as a tremendous success just shows how skewed our lens is. How do we measure success? Um, Success isn't because you manage to dominate and conquer and wipe out another whole community of human beings um success is if you are able to continue living in harmony and um, communities that have very small environmental footprints that are caring of each other, etc, these are communities that we need to hold up as being successful, not ones that have managed to amass the greatest wealth or power. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you know I th- the, we, we should talk at some point about the political economy that we are allowing, to continue mm. Un, mm. unchallenged. Um, and it's partly, yeah, this massive, the, the, the inequality that's come with neoliberal capitalism. The um, Maybe here's an example. Jeff Bezos. Um, yes. the, uh, the Amazon guy. Yes. I mean, he, he wants to put a little rover on the moon and this will be the first private person to have put a vehicle on the moon. And a lot of the narrative around that is, wow, there's this crazy frontiersman, super wealthy. He's going to do for the private person what governments have only been able to do in the past, you know, put a rover on the moon. Actually, the storytelling around this should not be celebrating him as someone who's using his vast wealth to, exp- you know, to do blue sky science for us. This is someone who <clears throat> has been allowed to um, capitalize on a system where he 's been able to uh, pay almost slave wages for to most of his junior or lower ranked staff to ship products around the world that most of us don't need um, and in doing so he's been allowed free use of atmospheric space um, atmospheric space that is part of our shared life support system <clears throat> he's had free use of that space to amass insane amounts of wealth um, we shouldn 't be celebrating him as a Bold frontiersman. We should be calling him out on the fact that he has um, been able to accumulate more wealth than anyone needs in a dozen lifetimes at the expense of everyone else. We need to shift these narratives. And this is where I get so angry with the media, <clears throat> particularly um, I've just taken a, a bit of a, an aim at, at the business media, and this is an article which I hope will come out in the Freie Wirtblatt um, in the short while. Um, our business media does not challenge the rules of the game uh, in the way I've just suggested. We should all it does is mm. cheerlead those people who are playing by the rules of the game. So it's our business media reports on you know which companies are doing well in terms of their shares and the returns. The only watchdog role they really play <clears throat> sorry the only watchdog role they really take is when they catch companies out for for not you know following due process whatever but they don't challenge the rules of the game. You know, the fact that, that these big companies are getting free use of the atmospheric space, we have very little time, very little atmospheric space left to keep our, you know, our common uh, um, life support system in a stable state. And yet, the business media doesn't even reflect on the fact that the rules of the game are fundamentally flawed and, uh, and that we need a completely new system. So, you know, in terms of shifting the value systems and shifting um, the cultural conversations and then challenging the political economy that's driving this problem, um, our media has an absolutely critical role to play. And from my perspective, it has dropped the ball completely. You know, the fourth estate is a key, it's a load bearing wall in any functioning, healthy society mm-hmm. and democracy. And uh, and if they're if they not challenging the rules of the game, then they have failed all of us. We have failed everyone.
0: I couldn't agree more, Leonie. I mean, for me, where uh, this was really on stark display was with that discovery of a billion barrels of gas off of the Southern Cape Coast and uh, following, directly following, uh, our president and uh, our amazing Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, Guetta Mantashe, who were trumpeting this as literally, I mean, the the biggest economic windfall since the discovery of gold and the Vitvartis Runt. Uh, mm. All of our big uh, business journalism names were, were trumpeting exactly that. And um, this got, you know, it got me really angry. And uh, mm. I, I put out a piece naming names and saying, you know, excuse me, the African resource curse and uh, this uh, little problem we have called uh, climate collapse. Um, Mm. And it was taken up. uh, And uh, it it, it was a piece that sort of stimulated uh, debate. So I couldn't agree more. And the, the fight is certainly there. But what's also there is the silent the silent majority i would say i would say that the silent majority who who may agree with us you know the people who who are not running investment banks and i'm not saying everybody who runs an investment bank is uh, is an evil genius who needs to be brought up in a crime against humanity although some of them certainly are but i'm saying there is a silent majority that you know would tend to be in touch with their common sense when it, when it comes to this. And, and, and one of the examples, it's, it's more than an example, and while you've been talking, I've just been looking for the name of the author, and unfortunately I can't find it, but he's, uh, he's, he's a well-respected American historian who uh, published a book a month ago about a forgotten war in the U.S., and it was a war that happened in 1791, 15 years after the United States Declaration of Independence, when the, uh, the indigenous peoples, the tribes of, of the plains and of the eastern United States, because obviously they hadn't, they hadn't gotten close to the West then, um, banded together to, to take on the colonizers and gave the Americans no end of a lesson. Um, one, one of the things that came out of this was that George Washington decided that what America needed was, was an army, but, uh, the, one of the leading chiefs at the time, and there was no real difference between a a, a chief and and an indigenous wisdom holder, you know, that, that, that Mm. wisdom was second nature. Yes, there was the healer and there was the shaman, and then there was the chief, but, the way that indigenous communities lived then was, you know, the wisdom was shared, the wisdom was held by the community. And he made a statement, this chief, and what he said was, what is going to be the death of the civilization is your idea that you can own land. Now, mm. pr- property rights are at, their, they're at the very center of our culture, uh, our entire co- economy, uh, our, our, our political idea, the reason we go to war, uh, is, is, is built on this idea that land is something you must own, uh, mm. in, in, in this country, um, the idea of land, the idea of land expropriation, the idea of land rights is our most. I would argue, our most flammable, our most explosive topic. And yet mm-hmm. we're fundamentally talking about something that it seems to me is at the core of why we are where we are, because the land owns us before we own the land.
1: Sure, that's a, a complicated thing to go into. Um I mean, it's uh, again, you know, if you look at who we were as hunter gatherers, it was complete anathema that anyone owned anything. <clears throat> you know, we, we were small enough, I guess, that we could move around and follow the seasons and track food, and nature could provide for us. And let's also not over romanticize. As hunter gatherers, we did manage to wipe out all the megafauna in every sort of new. Yeah, indeed. This is another thing that-
0: Jeremy Lent brings up, yeah.
1: But um, this idea that we we didn't own anything, we didn't need to, and then suddenly it changes when we be, we become agriculturalists. We are no longer tracking nature and and just uh, following wherever the food is available. We now are sedentary, so it means we have to stockpile food. Stockpiling food means we need to build fortification to store that food and to protect it, and then we have to put up boundaries around that and property rights in order to secure the stockpiling. And then this is the origin of the patriarchy as well, because suddenly the strongest bodies in your community who are better able to protect your stockpile become more valuable. And suddenly you have property rights being handed down and men are more valued because they're stronger and better able to protect the property. So they become politically and economically more powerful than women. And women who in hunter-gatherer societies were as equally ranked as men suddenly are are now on the back foot. Um, Here we are in in this day and age with massive populations, these structurally embedded um, property systems. Uh, How do you reverse that? I I don't know. I'm not well enough read on it. Um, But, you know, we've seen throughout sort of colonial history, well, I mean, you see this history in, in Britain um, and in Europe where, <clears throat> um, you know, these kind of peasant living farming communities had free access to the commons. They could go into the forest so they could hunt for for animals. They could pick, um, you know, fruit or, or tubers or whatever. It was everyone's to share and it was shared. And then suddenly you have these wealthy elites coming in and throwing a cordon around forests, etc., claiming those as their own. Um, People are then uh, no longer able to live off the land, and that often then ends up driving them into towns and later into cities. And of course, with the Industrial Revolution, that cemented the process. And very, very similar things happened here in South Africa. If you look at what the hut tax was, that was a way of forcing people who were living off the commons to, they were now forced into a, a cash economy um, family members were forced from these farming communities to go and find work in order to pay a hut tax to this colonizing force. And then suddenly you have entire communities are, are sheared away from their ability to survive off the land as, as small farmers and suddenly now have to get, get absorbed into this industrializing um, economy. Um, how you reverse um, sort of 200 years of social and economic engineering in this way I don't know. But you're right. I mean, I guess your question was around we are completely dependent on the land. And by land, you don't just mean the soil that people are growing food in. Mm. You're talking about um, the the wetlands that filter water for us, the trees that scrub and clean the air, the um, the The rain-cold fronts that bring the rain rain in in the first place, Um, the systems that allow our rivers to hold and retain and trickle-feed water. Um, When we talk about the land, that's what we mean. It's about every single system and every species that is part of that system that provides us with life. And I think the problem with them also being so urbanised, you know, I think half of South Africans are now urbanised and that's going to rapidly increase is that our city living life means we're so far removed from those daily practical reminders of, of how dependent we are on on these life support systems.
0: So I've just um, I found the reference, and I think it's uh, it's important to bring it up. The historian's name is William Hoagland, and uh, the book is called uh, Autumn of the Black Snake, where he writes about this, this specific period in American history where... The beginning of the end of indigenous wisdom there um, sort of came in, but 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 what I'm finding quite poignant in our conversation is we seem to be stumbling in the dark towards uh, or, or reaching for some sort of uh, way through because how can we not the enormity again of 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 biodiversity loss. I mean it's just one of those phrases that just doesn't do justice to what we're doing. We haven't seen mm-hmm. this level of 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 die off of species for ten to a hundred million years. And yeah. in fact, what the science is saying is that it's 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 ten to a hundred times higher than it has been in the last 10 to 100 million years that's that, that mm-hmm. that's a quote directly from the ipbs report mm-hmm. and so we have to start going into these areas that 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 will feel uncomfortable for a western audience that that'll feel uncomfortable you know at the same time that we're putting out a uh, an article like like yours today where we're also putting out you know, quite a few articles about the fact that you know what South Africa needs more than anything else is uh, is economic growth, and mm. um, we're saying, well, maybe maybe South Africa doesn't need economic growth more than anything else. So the question is, what does mm. South Africa need? What does the world need? Mm. And and we're stumbling towards that in the dark, and this podcast is essentially about stumbling towards that in the dark, and I um. Mm. I am as comfortable with that as I am uncomfortable with that because I have a 6-year-old daughter and a 2-year-old son. I I also happen to be in what some people might think is the very ridiculous position of being a 45-year-old white Jewish man who wears some goma beads and who has gone through a series of initiations and what 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 keeps me sane is being in ceremony. What keeps me sane oh. Is, is going to the sacred sites, is going to Lake, Lake Funduzi, is going to Tulumela, is going to Inzalo Yalanga, is, is, is paying homage to the likes of Credo Mutwa um, and the great Senusis of this land and, and trying to listen, trying to just tamp down what we think we are, what we think we are, what we're convinced that we are enough so that. Something new, uh, a, a new idea can can come in, and mm-hmm. I just get the sense, Leone, that that's exactly what you're doing, and that that's why your your piece today touched so many people and 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 landed so hard. And the only way we can come to that is through grief. you 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 you, mm-hmm. you, you don't get there through the head. You get there through grief. You get there through heartbreak. Yeah.
1: And you know what else, another way that we get there, is through having very frank conversations like this. Um, I mean, I don't know where you might have been 10 years ago, but would you have publicly um, spoken about your the crossover between your Jewish background and your exploration of a Sangorma cosmology? Um, you know, four years ago, I would never have mentioned publicly that I actively participate in the use of, of an illegal substance yeah. like psilocybin. Yeah. But I I realized that, um, and and this is where my fire is coming from, this is, the, the fire is is coming from this desperate need to survive the despair that I was feeling after the Donald Trump election. Yeah. It is I realize we actually don't have time to be coy about this anymore. Mm. Mm. And, um, you know, you are bringing... Um, a a brave exploration of a different cosmology. You are um, engaging with that in your way. I'm, as an atheist kind of materialist, throwing myself into this fascinating discovery of what psilocybin as a psychedelic can mean for me as an individual, as well as for us as as a collective. And we are now having a conversation where we're saying, okay, There are different ways of being in the world. There are ways of challenging the cultural narratives that are killing us. Let's bravely have these conversations. Let's tolerate other people's difference in this regard. And and let's see how we can encourage other people to think differently. Um, You know, we've been so schooled to think that this modern Western um, rational way of being in the world is you've arrived if if that's where you're at. Um, and on top of that, this this kind of massive consumerism that goes with it. Um, we need to start challenging what it means to be healthy and well in the world. Obviously, you want people who are living in in real poverty. You want them to have a quality of life, you know, a security of knowing that they can feed themselves every day, not having to battle with the constant, um, difficulties and then terrible—I um, call it the passive violence of poverty. You know, where you you're constantly struggling to make ends meet. You mm. want people to move out of that level of suffering and hardship. But once we have our basic needs met, is it not enough? You know, and and I think this is the difficulty of the human condition: is that we are uncomfortable in our skins. It's hard to be human. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to feel mm. discomfort. We don't want to feel anger. We don't want to feel anxiety. But that's what being human is about. And yet, mm. I think our accumulating wealth and the cityscapes that we live in and this consumerist world drives us to escape that discomfort and that pain. And um, and that's why we we spend, we hoard, we binge in all sorts of different ways. And being prepared to step back from that pattern and say, ok, maybe, maybe I do just need to not have that cigarette, not have that can of coke, not go and buy that piece of fast fashion, not send that text message. Maybe what I just need to do is sit quietly and stare at the ant that's carrying a little bit of pollen across my front stoop. Mm-hmm. and think from my from my atheist worldview, when when I die and my body slips back into the carbon cycle, Maybe a little bit of me will go on to become the leg of an ant one day or a piece of that Mm. little bit of pollen. Mm. And just that, and instead, I mean, I could be drinking a glass of wine and numbing myself to the the, the fact that life is really hard right now, or just actually sit with that discomfort and find something around me in nature that is marvelous. Um, And it's there, but we have to relearn these ways of being, they're not foreign to us. We mm. spent 150, nearly 200,000 years as hunter-gatherers being in that way. And the sense of awe and majesty that you have when you go to a sacred site, that may have been something that you learned because you were tapping into a specific regional cosmology, but actually you're tapping into something that's very ancient. Indeed. You know, each one of us, we, we have, the, we, you know, um, I love the fact that, that um, certain cultures talk about their ancestors. We all have ancestors, we all have the same ancestors. In fact, every every bird and plant and insect and little piece of fungus around us are all part of this family that has a common ancestor. We all evolved from the same life sources eventually if you go back far enough. We don't have different ancestors. So um, it's not foreign to us. It's, it's the, the residue and echo of that has evolved into our brains and our, we have this gut need. Uh, to recognize that again we just need to relearn it and I think if if people like us are able to step out and, and talk about this openly we can find other ways of doing it
0: so I know that you're uh, you're, you're searching uh, for for another way of doing it in a in a collective uh, environment and that you're you're putting together groups to to do, to do what? Let, let, let me not put words in your mouth. What, 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 what are you looking to actively set up?
1: Okay, so let me let me not claim more credit than is my due. I think I'm just one small little seed head in, in what is essentially a very exciting uh, collective that seems to be popping up all over the place. And I think today's article is just what, an example because so many people have contacted me. But More and more, there's an interesting emerging field in the world of psychology called eco-psychology. It taps a lot into the work of Joanna Macy, who is a, she's a woman who has a a deep Buddhist tradition and she's been working in this field of eco-grief for a very long time, acknowledging the the terrible sense of existential despair and overwhelm that people often feel when they truly confront the extent of our uh, destruction of life around us on this planet. And these eco-psychologists are popping up more and more. And um, they're looking to the, – the work, they, the kind of work they do might involve wilderness experience or artistic expression, dancing, um, various different processes that allow one to connect with these feelings. And I just happen to be incredibly lucky in that I've connected with a bunch of people in Cape Town um, one woman, I don't know if I should really say their names because I haven't spoken with them about going public with us, but it will be public fairly soon. But <clears throat> a woman who works, in, she's a trauma therapist who is deeply well-versed in in eco-psychology as a, as a way of being. Um, she is very well-connected with people working in the rights of Mother Nature space. And we want to pull together a, a retreat process that we're going to have next year. <clears throat> the idea is to confront the brutality of of um, what climate collapse means and what it means to be complicit in the sixth mass extinction. I mean, it's mm. just horrific to sure. think that we are part of this. Um, but how do we confront that grief and the pain and the uncertainty and the existential dread? And then how do we move through that using specific body practices? And I, I guess I'm not really skilled enough to talk about that, but processes of focusing on the breath, processes of nature immersion, et cetera, et cetera. And then out of that, connecting with the feeling and the pain and the experience of it, then moving through and then starting to consider where each one of us has a point of leverage within our community in order to disrupt the cultural narrative and and then to start to challenge the political economy. And <clears throat> I think it's really important Um, to just reflect on this for a minute. You know, we spend a lot of time in the climate change world talking about individual behavior change. You know, should you have kids? Should you eat meat? Should you drive a hybrid? Should you fly to Europe for a holiday, etc.? These are important questions and individual behavior change is critical. But consumers, dare I use that horrible capitalist word, are making choices within a very limiting system the system is what needs to change, and by that I mean this kind of unholy alliance between government policy and big corporates. Governments who have adopted a neoliberal market or a neoliberal e- economic structure—they are essentially the governments that are allowing large businesses to capitalize on a system where they get free, at, uh, you know, access to the atmospheric space, um, private, the, privatize the profits, while the costs of a chaotic climate on our being socialized as individuals and communities and also governments then have to pay for the mop-up operation. So we need to, if we can create a massive change in the cultural conversation, we can get people to start, you know, instead of nitpicking about each individual, whether they're buying fast fashion or not, we need to stop the big corporates from producing fast fashion. You know, it needs to be a radical revolution. We need to challenge Think about it this way. Every single time food is taken from the farm, good, healthy, nutritious, calorie-rich food, and it gets put through an industrial food processing plant that mills it down into dead food. So it's got taste, it's got a little bit of flavor, it's got some sugar in it, but it essentially has no um, calories. It's no no good for you. Every time a large bundle of food gets shoved through that milling process – It's essentially a wasteful use of the atmospheric space. So every time you take these good, wholesome calories from the farm, shove them through an industrial milling process that leaves you with cheap, dead food at the end. That is a wasteful use of the tiny bit of atmospheric space that we have left that should be saved for producing healthy food. Now, you could challenge the system by trying to ask everyone not to buy the fast junk food. Or you could demand that government throttles back on how much these um, big industrial food processes are allowed to, to do that with our calories. Um, it sounds quite radical, but you know, every time I stand in the aisle of temptation at a shop, I mean, this is kind of where a bit of my anxiety disorder is coming, is getting, is getting heightened. You know, is I, I stand in the in the in the aisle and I see a whole bunch of like super sugary sweets that are packaged in heavy-duty plastic or a fridge full of, ca- of bottles of Coke. And I think, how is it that we're still doing this? You know, the, besides the fact that the plastic is now going to go into a landfill and cause a whole bunch of other environmental problems, every little bit of water and sugar and carbonated fizziness in that, in that Coca-Cola bottle is using up um, this critically... Um, sorry, this this critical shortage of atmospheric space, it gives no nutrient goodness to anyone. It's actually really toxic for your body in the long term. We shouldn't be drinking it. And yet Coca-Cola is still allowed to keep producing this stuff. Mm. Um, Now, if we had tons and tons of atmospheric space left, I'd say by all means, let them keep doing it. We don't. You know, this is a life-threatening situation. Should Coca-Cola still even be allowed to produce this stuff? I know it's pretty radical. I I don't think anyone's even going to take me seriously by saying this, but we need massive throttling back of um, corporate production of stuff that is not producing or giving us things that are for our absolute essential well-being. Fast fashion is not for our well-being. Coke is not for our well-being. we need to rethink
0: this. Well, um, I mean, Leone, it's uh, you, you, you're you're not out on a limb here. This was the central statement of the IPCC report that came out in October twenty eighteen. There, mm-hmm. the the, the, the take home statement was: we need a radical transformation of our underlying social, political, and economic structures within the next twelve years, and it's now eleven years because it came out last yeah. year. Otherwise, civilization, yeah. as we know it is going to unravel. this is what science is saying. I mean what you're talking yeah. about now is actually the you know the common mm-hmm. sense this is what we have to do we have to we have to dismantle coca cola we have to can do i give this. you
1: a little absolutely can I give you a little analogy i mean this might help put a picture in in listeners' minds so imagine that you have a glass uh, a water glass in front of you <clears throat> and fill the water glass up so that there's Say, the water is just, say, a finger's width beneath the lip. Now, the glass itself is the capacity of our, is, is our atmosphere, and the space inside the glass is the capacity of our atmosphere to absorb all of the carbon emissions that have come from our industrial growth in the past sort of 200 years. But the bulk of that water has been poured into the glass in the past 50 years. Now this is the time, Kevin, that you and I have been alive. <clears throat> the space, the space that's left in the glass, is how much atmospheric space we have left. Once the glass fills up and starts to spill over, that's when we slip over a threshold into mm. a climate that is completely unstable. It's outside of anything that our, our stable civilization has emerged. So essentially, we've got 12 years, 11 years left in which to turn off the tap to stop it reaching the top. Now, if you shake that glass as it is at the moment and water starts slopping out, that's already happening. So that's, that is the, the signs, one of the signs that our atmosphere is already becoming unstable. And how that is, expresses itself? Bats falling dead from trees during the heat wave in Australia. Massive wildfires in California, in Greece, in Neisner. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the three-year drought that nearly shut off Cape Town's water and had devastating impacts for for animals and farmers around the subcontinent. Um, It's, um, you know, the two record-breaking cyclones that just hit Mozambique and where 90% of Bayra was almost wiped out. Mm -hmm. So if you think we now have this tiny little bit of atmospheric space left before we slip into a runaway climate, unstable state... How, do, how are we allocating, how are we using every little bit of that space? So every single activity that we do, every single activity we allow corporates to continue doing, we're deciding who gets to use that atmospheric space. And if it's not producing anything that is for the well-being of the planet, not just humans, the planet, then we have to stop doing it. It's that simple.
0: So I know that our uh, wonderfully talented and very handsome producer, uh, Joel Oczewski, has a couple of questions but uh I just have one more Thanks. and it's 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 around the change that we've actually seen in the last six months um mm-hmm. we've seen extinction rebellion explode we've seen a sixteen year old Swedish woman by the name of Greta turnberg become one of the biggest icons that the climate change movement, if not the biggest icon that the climate change movement has ever had, we've seen the the generation that this is seriously going to affect, i.e. the teenagers today who, who are going to mm-hmm. get this in a level that we as 40 year olds cannot begin to fathom. We've seen them begin to organize. We've seen the UK become the first country on earth to declare a climate emergency. And today, We've uh, woken up to the news uh, that the UK is going for net zero emissions by 2050 and that the Norwegian uh, sovereign wealth fund, which is the biggest wealth fund of its type on planet Earth, is uh, divesting from fossil fuels. These are not small victories. Are are we mm-hmm. starting to see the beginning of a turnaround? And, I'm asking this to you specifically because you've been on this for 17 years. Mm-hmm. You've given the Ruth first lecture, you've won multiple awards, you've put out books, you have been relentless and committed before any of us as journalists were even looking at this. What are you what are we seeing? Are we seeing something new?
1: I think we definitely are and and I have to say um in my moments of deep despair this is what I'm holding on to. Um, you know, the the environmentalist and and, uh, and writer George Mobbio was uh, referring recently to some research around how all you need is 3.5% of a population to get behind a cause. Yeah. And then it, it tips over and gets its own momentum. And it may have taken us 20 or 30 years to get that momentum, but something has suddenly changed. And uh, the the ratcheting up of of dialogue on this front in the last six months is a, a sign of that. I mean, I I don't <clears throat> I don't think I would have been as brave as to say many of the things I have in the past six months if I didn't feel that I f- I felt safer to say it. And I know that some of the things I say might sound a little bit radical <laughs> um, in in mainstream circles, but at the same time, you know, reflecting again on on the youth. Um, You don't know this, Kevin, but I've actually just finished another article that I want to send to you to publish on Youth Day.
0: Fantastic. (laughs) Last
1: last Friday, I was at a a dinner party, and this article reflects on the disparity of people in the room. An old, you know, a a 60-year-old retiree going on about how climate change is nonsense uh, on one side of the the dinner table, and on the other side, an 11-year-old who hasn't found his voice yet in adult circles, but is so completely, uh, his grasp of climate science just makes most adults' knowledge of the subject Mm. embarrassing. And not only that, he doesn't just know the facts, he is grappling with the existential stuff that comes with it. He understands Mm. that he is probably not going to have children, that he may not live a natural life. Um, and my, I was so enraged by the fact that this old retiree was dominating the conversation and completely disrespecting the, the lived experience of this 11-year-old that it propelled me to sit at my desk until midnight last night writing this piece for you. But the truth is that, um, you know, you, so most of these emissions have, have been put out in the last 50 years that's the time that you and I have been alive. Mm. We are now handing this glass to this kid and saying, sorry, not much space left and it's going to get sloppy and messy. We owe it to these kids to give them absolutely every single bit of support they need, practically at a skills level and at an emotional level to survive what it is they're facing. Because if you and I feel overwhelmed at 46 and 44, What And I mean, we probably only have 30 more years to deal with this and we've got some adult skills, you know, we we kind of know how to handle life. Mm. How do you think an 11-year-old is going to cope with this when they haven't even started going through the normal hormonal fluctuations that are about to start barreling through their bodies? Um, (laughs) No 11-year-old in the history of humanity has had to face the kind of existential knowledge that these kids are facing now. Um, a while ago, when the Extinction Rebellion was kicking off at the beginning of the year and the school climate strikes were getting going, um, uh, there was a, on one Friday, someone phoned into a local radio station, Cape Talk, and was moaning about the traffic. Um, because of the climate strikes and, and made some snide comments about he hoped that the kids would use clean transport to get to school. And I just thought, wow, this guy, not only is it churlish to say that, but it's completely out of step with his own complicity. You know, the fact that many of us have been able to live these comfortable middle-class lives mm. using the atmosphere as freely as we have. And now we're handing on to these kids a completely unstable state. We need to suck it up quieten ourselves and our own privilege and actually think how are we going to work with these kids to help them survive? Because if thirty years looks daunting to us, can you imagine what it's like to know that you've got eighty years ahead of you battling with this kind of an unstable environment.
0: To which in every language I know I say Amen, Makosi, <laughs> Hallelujah. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. I
1: Uh, Thank you. And I had a question for you, actually. So, um, I was wanting to ask you earlier, Kevin, you know, um, this kind of Western model of education and thinking um, turns its back on traditional value systems. Um, Animism is seen as either freakish or taboo or dark, um, non-Christian, and... uh, and foreign and backward sometimes. I mean, that's the kind of pejorative language mm. one often sees. Mm. But if tapping into these older cosmologies is essential to changing the worldview that is driving us to kill this planet, how do we introduce those kinds of ways of being and thinking into our conversation in a way that isn't threatening to people who are locked into the maybe Christian or Western belief system?
0: Yeah, I mean that—that that is the question, Leonie. And I'm going to answer it this way. I'm going to say that the reason I'm wearing these beads is because in April last year I had a dream in Corsa, and I don't—I don't speak Corsa. And what the dream told me to do—it was an injunction. It said, "Carry them across." which I figured hmm. out when I, when I googled the, the phrases that I was able to sort of isolate. And uh, a week later, I had a dream of two graves next to each other in a desert environment. And four months later, my uncle and father died within six weeks of each other. Hmm. And it's less about... Introducing this to a Western worldview, where our reason is basically a lid on our humanness. We it's, it's a lid, and it stops the cosmos from coming in. Hmm. It's 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 not so much about introducing it to a Western framework and trying to do courses, you know, uh, called IKS. Which um, various universities and government departments have failed spectacularly at doing, mm. as it is about embracing the unknown. what 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 mm. we do in Western society is is we embrace the known. And so we keep on making the same mistakes, expecting different results, which is the cliche for the definition of insanity. And Mm -hmm. we are reaching a point, not just as a society, but as an entire human collective and species where everything we think we know has brought us to the abyss. So the only thing we have left to embrace is the unknown. Mm -hmm. And indigenous practice is about embracing the unknown. We go into spaces, realms, planes, ways of being ways of interacting, ways of entering into communion that have absolutely nothing to do with what we've been taught and that have everything to do with mystery, which is what we don't have and what we need. And that's, that's my short answer. Um, yeah, thanks for the question.
1: I, I would be very interested to see over the next few months and years how, as you continue to engage with this crossover of, you know, uh, disrupting the cultural narrative and bringing your own, um, your own shifting cosmology into the conversation, I'd love to see
0: where that goes. No, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: Leonie, I want to thank you. Very much for giving us your time today. It was a real pleasure to have you. It's very um, interesting um, and hopefully we can have you back sometime soon
1: well i, I yeah thank you so much um I, I sit in a funny little writing cave down here and I forget that i'm actually part of a wider world <laughs> and and having a platform like this to to actually um, have a conversation is really wonderful and thank you and and also you know history will remember you well for. Um, forcefully um, getting your media platform to engage with this topic at a time when it's absolutely critically needed. So, well done.
2: Thank you. I mean, it's quite optimistic to think that history will remember anything at this point. <laughs> but,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are so right. I was right. about to say that. <laughs> no, no, um, that's that's actually a beautiful way to end it. Yeah. I mean, what hubris, what hubris to think that that. That you and I will even change this mm. system in the
2: long term. Well, be just, <laughs> just on that note, I just I heard um, I was reading something by a bio, this bioscientist, I can't, I can't remember his name, but he was calling this age, you know, a lot of people refer to it as Anthropocene. I think he he's calling it the Plutocene because he's saying the record will show like all this plutonium that was unprecedented before had never been around there's no record of a layer of plutonium like there is now sort of mm. all over the place covering you know um, wow. so he's saying that's if anything is remembered it'll be this will be the plutocene age because that's the one thing that we'll leave behind that is not going not going anywhere <laughs> <laughs> and will last hundreds and thousands of if not millions of years. <laughs>
1: Absolutely right. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I mean, that's a beautiful uh, point to end it on. You know, I uh, in in moments where I am feeling more upbeat about the existential questions of life, I do feel enormous joy at the fact that when my heart stops beating and my lungs stop billowing, um, and my body decays and slips back into the carbon cycle, um, I'll just you know. Become part of this little planet that will carry on spinning for another few billion years until the sun explodes and all of the stuff gets blasted out into space and maybe another planet forms eventually. But um, the idea of, of not being conscious anymore is not that terrifying. Um, you know, we, we just go back to the carbon cycle and, and our particles spread and, you know, we go back to where we came from.